You don't need to do Welcome it now. Welcome, Brother Isaac. Appreciate it. It's not necessary to do it now, so. Good morning, church family. How's everybody? Good. That was actually a better response than I was expecting. That's awesome. Um, real quick, before we, we dive in, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1. Titus. We're going we're gonna to spend some time since I'm going to be, the, it's, it's the JV team uh, for the next month or so. Um, so I'll be up here for the next few weeks. We're going to be studying the book of Titus together. And we're going to be uh, taking a little bit of a break from Exodus because I want Pastor to be able to, to preach through that while he's, uh, while he's done. Uh, for, for preachers and for pastors, it, it becomes kind of your child when you're preaching through a long text of Scripture, especially the way that is most common here, which is expository preaching, meaning verse by verse, chapter by chapter, books of the Bible, that kind of thing. So I originally asked Pastor if he wanted me to continue that, but he was... Uh, he was very gracious and, and saying, I'm not sure, but it was one of those things to where I, I get it. I totally understand him wanting to, to, to complete it. He's begun this work. He's laid this foundation, and he's going to continue to do that once he is feeling better, and hopefully it's, uh, it's, it's quick. For the time that we have together, though, with you all and myself, we're going to be in the book of Titus. Today will be primarily introduction, and we're really only going to look at one verse, and it's the very first verse of Titus. But before we do that, uh, I want you to know I have a, uh, the music was, was absolutely wonderful. It's, it's always exciting and energizing for a pastor, for a preacher to be able to get up and to not only, not only to join in with the singing and praise of God's, uh, of God's people, but to hear you all singing as well is, is incredibly encouraging. So that goes for, for, for Brother Dale, for, for Pastor Greg as well. When we hear our people proclaiming the goodness and the praises of God, it's, it's something that energizes our hearts and energizes our lives. And it got me thinking, there's a little uh, print off that I printed off a long time ago that it's out of John chapter 12, verse 21. It's a, it's a real brief verse. Some of you might not get it, but it's one that I keep in my Bible and I put it right in the place where I'm about to preach from. And all it is is John 12, 21 that says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So my desire is to not give you Isaac's opinions, not give you Isaac's thoughts, but to give you and to make very clear uh, Jesus. Because that's what you need, that's what I need, um, that's what the world needs for sure. So as we get ready to, to do that, we're going to be needing to, to lay some groundwork for the book of Titus. So that's what today, again, will primarily be about. We'll get to uh, verse 1 in just a minute, but we'll be in a lot of different places. But let's pray. I know Brother Joe just got done praying, but I want us to pray as we center our heart's attention and our mind's affection. Got that backwards. But on God's word and minimize distractions open our hearts and our minds that the Holy Spirit may speak very clearly through his word. So pray with me. Lord, we do not want to come into your presence with our opinions, with our presuppositions, our persuasions. Lord, the cry of every true, genuine believer is to see you. And Lord, you have made it very clear to us through your word who you are, who we are, and what you have done for us. 
Lord, I pray that as we open your word over the next several weeks to examine this letter, this beautiful, beautiful yet short letter, I pray that we would be surrendered to you, be surrendered to the, the movement of your spirit within us, not in a mystical way as though the chills going up our spines or the, the way a certain song makes us feel is the guiding factor of our life. No, the, the spirit came that he might guide us into all truth. I pray that that's what we do here. Lord, one of the most encouraging things is that throughout the generations, the defining statement that unites all believers is we believe. Thank you for the fact that you have given us truth to believe. And may we dive into the truths that we see here in this text today, that we may believe and to help our unbelief as well. And it's your name that we pray. Amen. Real quick, before we get to Titus, I do have a uh, quick illustration that I would like to show you. Two friends traveling down a road. They're cartoons. Two friends traveling down a road. The uh, sign behind them says America for the past few hundred years, and the man on the right says, I feel like we're at the end of an era in our country. Doesn't it seem like that? For so long, Christianity was considered a good thing for society. The next one, he continues on and says, Christians were generally liked. The Bible was considered a good book. Christian morals were considered the standard. And Christianity was, the, was kind of the norm. That's all changing now, and it's happening so quickly. It's not considered a positive thing to be a Christian anymore, from culture's point of view at least. It's so different. It's so weird. His friend responds, different, yes. Weird, no. We're leaving weird. We are headed toward normal. And the welcoming sign in front of them is most of the world since the early church. Welcome, we don't like you. It's a sobering reality, but that's the reality that exists for the believer, for the Christian, that this place is not our home. We, we rest in the fact that we live in a country that is unprecedented in its religious liberty for hundreds of years. It's one of the pillars upon which the founding fathers made it to where people could exercise their faith without fear of being forced to serve a pope, to go against the Catholic Church, things like that, that, that they even stand on the shoulders of men before them as well, men and women. But what's interesting is to understand that this is normal, the things that experience in the world around us, the things that we see on the news, on social media, in our own lives, through, through our own jobs, or our own personal experiences, these are, these are the normal things. What's most important is to not be surprised by these things, to not be surprised that people who, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, who love the darkness are doing what they love. Here are some marks of a corrupt culture First one is that correction is condemnation. The second one is that you preach tolerance by demanding silence. That truth is actually a personal attack. And that fairness reigns supreme. And for so many Christians, for so many churches, 
these things are slowly becoming a part of the fabric of local churches. Is there, is there validity to some of these? Maybe. Are Christians not very good at some time in a large general sense at showing these things to be false? Yeah, we, we're, we're hypocrites. A large majority of us. But what is most shocking is the fact that so many times Christians and churches who claim to be followers of Jesus, who claim to be surrendered to the God of the universe, they would rather subtly slip these things into the way that they live their lives and into their, church, their churches as opposed to standing on the grounds of Scripture. Instead of declaring that doctrine, theology, are important things. The most important thing for a believer is to believe who Jesus is. But not just to believe who Jesus is, but to believe who he says that he is. The foundation of our lives is not the, 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 the pen of some people's writings. It's the word of God breathed out to us, written and preserved by God himself. The foundation of the Christian life and the way in which we know how to live our lives in the midst of a corrupt culture is found in the pages of Scripture. We've had so many religious liberties, and it's been an amazing blessing, but we are heading towards the normal. We must be ready for it. We must understand it as it comes. Here's, the, here's what I want you guys to take away from Titus, because Titus is all about all about understanding who God is, understanding accurate biblical doctrine, and, allowing, and that is what fuels and calls for godly living. Right doctrine, biblical theology, and accurate interpretation of the Word of God have to be the goal because they call for and lead to godly living. Any Christian who claims to live, their God, to live in righteousness aside from Scripture guiding them is living in a false understanding. They are living outside of the will of God. The will of God is to be conformed to the image of His Son. And in order to do that, we have to understand what His Son has said. A basic understanding of this is found in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. God spoke to us. He spoke to create all things, but then he continues to speak. And so many of us are so quick to let, to let and allow other voices that seem louder or more persuasive or more fair to be the voices that rule our hearts and rule our churches. If you're here this morning and you're not a born-again born believer, this is not... This is not condemnation. Again, the, the, the idea of correction being condemnation is, is only given strength and giving, given merit when there is no true handling of God's word and to where you use the word of God as a club instead of as what it's supposed to be, the fountain of life. Jesus says in Mark 12, verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Many Christians don't like 
the idea of doctrine. Many Christians don't like the idea of theology because it sounds and seems more intellectual and it just makes you arrogant. And honestly, for the immature believer, it does. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take very long for a person who is immature in their faith to realize that you can take any Bible out of any verse out of the Bible and make it fit whatever you want it to. The mark of a true, genuine, mature believer is do you take the words of what Christ has given to us, live according to that rather than trying to fit it into your own ideas, into your own presupposed theologies. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, A lady that many of you know, her name is Jen Wilkin, in her book, Women of the Word, she says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. People who claim to know Christ, people who claim to know God, have all these preconceived ideas about who God is to where their theologies shape how they read Scripture. And in many cases, that is what Jesus warned against for his disciples against the Pharisees, to the point to where your traditions becomes the anchor point in which you build, build your entire life and your entire ideas about the world around you. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. You cannot muzzle the scriptures to silence the parts that you don't like, agree with, fit your presupposed theologies, or seem fair. Because church family, there is a difference between fair and just. You don't want fair. No one in this room, no one in human history wants what's fair. Because what is truly fair? If Jesus is right, and he is, in John chapter 3 where he says, the light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness, then what's truly fair is for him to remove the darkness, for him to eliminate all evil. It ought to be an immediate trigger in your mind and in your heart to pray for people who say, how can God allow so much evil in the world? And I hope that your response to that, if that is a conversation that gets brought up between you and a coworker, you and your children, whoever it may be, I hope the next question out of your mouth would be, what do you define as evil? Is it just action? Or is it evil thoughts? Is it evil intentions? Is it evil desires? If you want God to get rid of all evil in the world, nobody lives. Evil is beyond the actions. The evil actions that we see on the news and in people's people's lives is a result of the inward evil that we all have within us. The doctrine of total depravity is actually should be understand better as total inability, that we are not as evil as we possibly could be, though there are some who are, but that we are totally and completely unable to do anything to merit God's goodness and God's favor Because of our sin, we've committed, as one man says, cosmic treason against God himself, the creator of the universe. There is nothing inherently beautiful or good about dirt. And guess what? That's where you and I came from. We have nothing apart from Christ. We have nothing apart from him who started all things. You cannot muzzle the scriptures that silence the parts you don't like. Listen to this with one man named Vody Bauckham says that no matter how good things get in this world, it's all Egypt. 
There will never be enough gold chains, fine linen, praise, adoration, or anything else to satisfy the yearning that God has placed in us. Only his presence in the land of promise will satisfy his people. Augustine, one of the early church, church fathers, also said this in his confessions, For thou hast made me for thyself, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. This is the tension that we live in. This is the tension that existed in Titus's day, Paul's day. A lot of the things that we're talking about are things that are addressed in a much more theological, doctrinal sense in order to get to the heart of what these things that we know in our minds, which they should do, which is to lead us into godly and righteous living. But here's something I want you to keep in mind. We've been going through Exodus with Pastor Greg for for a long time now. But keep Exodus in mind as we go through the book of Titus. Keep the sovereignty of God in front of you at all times because it will come up in Titus. You cannot divorce God's God's character from his word. Whether it's in Exodus, whether it's in the letters, whether it's in the end times, whether it's in the poetry that we see in the book of Psalms and Proverbs and so so on, you cannot avoid the sovereignty of God, that God will be doing a work in the people, delivering them, delivering his people, his chosen people out of Egypt to the promised land. Here in Titus, we're going to see the words of a man who has descended from those people, Paul. Titus is not a, a, a Jew. Titus is a Gentile. But who were the people of Israel What was their mission? What was God's calling for them to be? A light to the Gentile nations. The sovereignty of God is that in that all of what happens in Exodus and through the fabric of history that God has already woven and knows the end from the beginning, he has tied for us clearly here in the book of Titus a Jewish man speaking to a Gentile believer very clearly showing us the bridge that happened even before the beginning of the world. Keep in mind the spiritual heritage that now Titus is brought into. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that the true Israelite is not merely the one who is circumcised in the flesh, but the one who is circumcised in the heart. Through the work of Christ and what he did on the cross and through his redemptive plan for God's people to be brought out of Egypt, to be going through all the things that they are going through in the Old Testament, to get to the point where they are now entering into the promised land during Joshua's time, all of this has, a, has its purpose. It's this scarlet thread that runs from the Genesis, first words of Genesis, all the way to Revelation. And so we have been brought into a spiritual family that is held together by the sovereignty of God. Titus is also a book about structure. We've been seeing a lot of structure in Exodus. All the different pieces of the tabernacle, all the different functions of the worship service of God in Exodus comes to fruition here in Titus. When Paul instructs Titus about the way that churches should run, the way that churches should be organized according to God's law and according to God's commands. When we get to these sections about the qualifications of elders, I want every person, including myself, to be aware of the things that are listed here. In verses 5 through through 9, we won't get to them today, but in the next couple weeks we will. 
These are not things that are exempt from people who are not elders of churches. There is a specific calling, a specific task placed upon those who are qualified to be elders. But the characteristics we see in here are also applied to every individual person who claims to be a born-again believer. There is structure for worship. There is structure for how we are to live our lives. It's not as though we get to to have this get-out-of-hell-free card and then get to do whatever we want. There are plenty of religions who believe that. But again, that fits their presupposed ideas. That fits their, their thoughts about who God is to them rather than who he has said that he is. Keep in mind the sacrificial system from Exodus. We're going to see here Paul writing some really incredible doctrine, correcting a lot of false teachings that have tried to come up from within the church in Crete. That's where Titus is serving at this point. He's going to bring up the fact that we don't have righteousness according to some sacrificial system that was established and had its place and was ordained by God to be the way in which people would have their sins removed temporarily. We've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb as a part of the new covenant to where it is not constant over and over and over sacrificing of these animals, providing temporary relief, temporary forgiveness. But through Christ, we have been given forgiveness once and for all. Everything about Exodus points us to who Christ is in the New Testament. In fact, it's interesting, this is a side note, People who want to claim that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament do not understand the Trinity. They do not understand, and again, your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. They do not understand the doctrine of the Trinity. If Jesus in the New Testament is God, that means everything done in the Old Testament by God is under the authority and affirmation of Jesus himself. Everything that happens, one of the things I try to tell our students and I try to tell our, our, our daughters is that when we look at the Bible, when we look at God's work in human history, one of the things that we have to keep in mind at all times, even during things that we don't quite understand, is the overarching premise that God is good, therefore what he does is good. What he has decreed to be done is good. The reason that God knows all things and has all knowledge is because he's decreed those things to take place. And these are things that give comfort and security to the believer because we understand that in Christ we have all that we need for life and godliness. The sacrificial system is no longer necessary, it had its place. God ordained it to have its place at one time, but it was just a shadow and a copy of the true fulfillment of that system, which is Christ himself. And lastly, the supremacy of God's word. Pastor has done an amazing job in Exodus telling us that even though some of those things don't quite make sense to us, like the labor or the craftsmanship, those small details that sometimes get overlooked by people who are really just wanting to be told what to do and then go out and apply it, Those are all uniquely part of God's word. Everything that emanates from the mouth of God ought to be understood and held to the highest place possible. 
The groundwork for Paul's letter is to understand and keep all of these things in mind that we've been going over in Exodus and all the things that we've been seeing here. Here's a couple, a couple pictures. You can find these probably in the, in the maps in the back of your Bible. Um, these are just some of the areas that, that Paul was going to. I think I'm just going to keep it here at, at this picture. Um, Crete. Crete is the island right above where Egypt is. If you see the, where it says Mediterranean Sea down at the bottom, Crete is that little island right above it. This is where Titus is serving. Paul wrote this letter sometime around his fourth, his fourth missionary journey or so. He was uh, probably somewhere in the realm of Macedonia, which is just north of Corinth, if you can see Corinth there. But what's important to understand is that when we look at the history of this letter, of this writing, there are some important, things that, important questions that we need to ask. Who? Who wrote it? Let's get to the text. Finally, we're getting to the text. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Who wrote this letter? Paul. He identifies himself. Paul. Then he qualifies and gives himself a a couple titles. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle, Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Written by Apostle Paul. Considered himself a servant of God and an apostle. Now, it's in what, again, what needs to be known in order for us to understand the, the severity of what Paul is saying here, just in his address to Titus, that there are three predominant qualifications for an apostle during this time. Three qualifications. The first one was that you had to have seen the risen Jesus. An eyewitness, a firsthand eyewitness of the risen Jesus. This puts Paul kind of at a disadvantage unless you think of Acts chapter 9. When he was converted on his way to Damascus, Christ appeared to him. Others did not see him, though he himself saw Christ in the sky. Calls out to him, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting, the persecutor becomes one of the most persecuted individuals after that for the sake of Christ. Had to have seen the risen Jesus. Number two, has to have been directly appointed by Christ. Directly appointed by Christ. We'll get to that in a moment as well, but the third qualification is that you had to have performed the wonders and the signs that Christ himself did. Now in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes for us that the foundation of the church is the teaching of the apostles. Christ is the cornerstone. The most important stone of that foundation is the cornerstone. But quick poll, your house has how many foundations? Probably just one, right? Hopefully just one. That's a really bizarre house, really bizarre building. Buildings have only one foundation. Therefore, there are no apostles today. There are no apostles today. People may claim People may say that they have seen the risen Christ, that they have been directly commissioned by Christ, that they can perform such signs and wonders. That is incorrect. The things that Christ appointed to his apostles were for a certain time. But how does, how does Paul fit into this? When we look at Paul writing to Titus, why is he the one writing to Titus? Back in Galatians, we get to, to see a little bit more of an eyewitness understanding about what, where Paul was how Paul received his apostleship. 
in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy life in Judaism, how I persecuted the when I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among, me, among many people, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart, who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace, I was pleased, it was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles. Christ, Paul Sorry, Paul, a Hebrew, in fact, in Philippians chapter 3, he refers to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, gives his long resume, his long credentials about why he was so zealous for the Jewish God, and then realizes that when compared to who Jesus truly is, everything that he thought, every tradition that he had, every presupposed idea about who God was failed in comparison to who Jesus was. Titus is a result of that. Back in Galatians, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is also known as Peter. I remained there with him for 15 days. I saw one of the, one, no, none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Skip down to verse two, or to chapter two, verse one. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking who? Titus, along with me. I went up because of a revelation and had set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. The apostles who were there who saw Christ, who saw him in the flesh, those are the ones whom Paul went to, not flaunting his apostleship, not flaunting his revelation, his personal experience. He went directly to the firsthand witnesses of Christ to verify his gospel that he was proclaiming. But he didn't do it just overnight. Three years then spent 15 days with Peter, and then for the next 14 years continued to do his work and took with him Titus, who would have been there at this congregation of pillars of our Christian history, our Christian heritage, and began to explain to them and began to, to go over with them and work with them and to understand what he was communicating, what he was proclaiming truly was from God himself. The Greek word for apostle comes from Jewish legal culture. It's a translation of a Jewish word that meant sent one, one who is sent on one's behalf. So anywhere an apostle was sent, a messenger, an emissary, a dignitary for typically a king but could be another authority figure, Wherever that messenger was sent, 
It was legally binding as though they had the power of authority for the one who sent them. That everything communicated from them on behalf of the authority, person, the, the authority figure who sent them, king or otherwise, when they stood in the presence of whatever council they were in, they represented fully the one who sent them. Why is this so important? Why does this matter? Because Paul is giving extra encouragement, extra understanding to Titus by saying, this is not just somebody's opinions. These are not just my thoughts about how, how church should be. These are not my thoughts for how we should believe about God, but in fact, it is God himself who has sent Paul to be a messenger on Christ's behalf. And Titus is the recipient of that. Titus is leading a church in the, nation, in the, the island of Crete. This letter, this is a type of letter that was written in the, the traditional Greco-Roman style, um, meaning it has a greeting, a body, and a closing. And a lot of the information that is related in this is known to both the sender and the recipient. So when Paul says in Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is standing on the foundation of Christ's word himself. This is the authority by which he proclaims to Titus, here is how you should be doing things. It's not preference. It's not personal ideas. He goes on in verse 1 and says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. We don't really have enough time for, for this one verse. But let's not skip over that first title that Paul uses. We had to do some groundwork for understanding the apostleship, the authority of God's word in the lives of people who claim to be Christians, like in Crete, like here today. We cannot overlook the fact that Paul makes a beeline in his writing straight to his identity. This is the Greek word doulos, bondservant, a slave. One of the more famous and well-known places that we hear this word doulos is actually in his, his letter to the Roman Christians. In Romans chapters 6 through 8, where Paul is not addressing being a bond servant of Christ, he in fact is talking about being a slave to sin and to darkness. Because in our natural state, our will, everything about who we are, loves the darkness. Totally unable. Totally incapable of earning or meriting God's favor. For him to express himself as a servant of God, in fact, this is, one of the, this is probably the only place I think that he actually does refer to himself as a servant of God. He may refer to himself as a servant in other letters, but the, the, the classic way that he uses that phrase is to say that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. So why the, why the use of God? To show Jesus is God. 
servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Later on, he talks about, in verse 3, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Then in verse 4, to Titus, my true child and true child in a common faith, grace and peace from the God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Just in this one verse, Paul is laying the foundation, laying a very clear argument for why it is so important to believe what God has said about himself. One thing that's important for us to understand, though, when we look at Paul, we know that he was a sinner. We know that he was a sinner. He claims out of himself in 2 Timothy that God saves people who call on his name. He says, of who I am, chief of sinners. At no point does Paul ever give his own Credentials. Does he ever give his own reason for being a self-made man, a righteous person, an upright Jewish man? In fact, back in Philippians 3, like we've mentioned already, when he does list all those things, you know what he compares it to? Human waste. Compares it to garbage. Compares it to rubbish. Compares it to dung. Everything that I could possibly achieve, Paul says, everything that I had, all of my knowledge about who I thought God was, was nothing compared to who Jesus truly is. The good news, though, is that sinners through Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, become saints. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin so we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The clear and present uprightness of God's moral character It's what's known as in the, in, in the theological world as an imputation. Double imputation to where God in Christ imputed, given to us, traded his sinlessness and applied it to our account. Took upon himself, the double imputation on the other side is that Christ himself took upon his account our sin. God treated Jesus in our place the way that we deserve so that he would treat us through Christ the way that Christ deserves. This is what's at stake when we simply set aside the true teachings of the gospel in order to be more considerate, to be less condemning, to appear more righteous by the world's eyes, but in reality, there's, they have nothing for it. Not trying to be 
harsh, not trying to be hateful, but Jesus says, do not cast your pearls before the swine because they cannot cherish it for what it truly is. But instead, what are we to do? We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Second thing that we see in Titus chapter 1 is that slaves to sin through Christ become slaves to Christ. I don't have time to read all of Romans 6 through 8. I pray that you do. I pray that you go home and read Romans 6 through 8. But after this long, after this long explanation of what it is to be in the flesh, which is to be dead in our sin. You can even back up to chapter 5 when he talks about the first Adam, our, our physical forefather, Adam. We are in him, dead in our sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That's the nature of who we are. And in fact, Paul, one of the, one of the, the greatest men... Christians to ever live even says in Romans chapter 7, I do, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do is not what I want to keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's this constant trap of being stuck in our sins, trapped in our sins, that there is no way out, there is no, nothing that we can offer to forgive, to forgive us of our sin, nothing that we can do to possibly break that chain. That's why in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it is so critical to the life of a believer. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Slaves to sin become slaves to Christ. Not according to what they think, what they believe, but according to God's perfect plan. The third thing that we see is that when Paul, back in Titus chapter 1, when he said, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, we have to understand here that Paul was sent, Paul sent this letter to Titus as an apostle, in the full authority of Jesus Christ to be sent these words to structure the church in Crete. But who was the first apostle? Who was the very first apostle sent with true authority? It was Jesus. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, for all authority has been given to me. Go, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. How are we to teach them all that Christ has commanded if we're not, lear not learning, not knowing, and growing in what he has commanded us to do? We're like a blind man in a dark room just trying to feel around, trying to find something. John 6, verse 38 through 40. Oop. Page off. 
Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son believes in him and should have eternal life. How does this happen? How is the process of this happening? He, he clarifies it for us in verse 44 of John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Christ was sent to do the will of the Father to, for the glory of his Father's name and for our good. Salvation is not the gospel, it is a result of the gospel. Salvation is, to us, the enormous benefit of what God was truly doing to glorify himself. So that through the gospel, through the, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf, taking upon himself our sin and imputing to us his righteousness, we can have fellowship with him, live according to his word, be empowered by the spirit that now dwells within us, that the Old Testament believers... They only look forward to. It was just a shadow and a copy. But what does Paul say about people in the Old Testament who trusted in God? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. At no point was anybody in the Old Testament ever forgiven of their sins by slaughtering an animal. They were forgiven of their sins by when they trusted God's word. So here Paul says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That word literally means to be chosen out of. That God himself would not just look down the corridor of time and see who would choose him, but that he acted first. We find later on in Titus, he says that this happened before the foundation of the world, before the ages even began. 2 Timothy, another letter that's very similar. 1 Timothy and Titus were written very similar in, in very short time between each other. But in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Christ has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Why does he do this? Why does he do these things? Doesn't he know who we are? At the core of who we are, why does he do this? Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of his glory and grace. God's sovereignty is our security. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Maybe getting that one mixed up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. That's why he finishes this one simple verse. And their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Sorry, Paul, but aren't truth and knowledge kind of related to each other? Why do you have to specify with the preposition? Because it's to show us the robust fullness of the gospel. That our eyes are opened to saving faith by God himself. To what he has done for us on the cross. To the love with which he sent his only son. So whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The current condition, though, is in John 3.17. It's one of the most unfamiliar Bible verses. Because John 3.17, Jesus says himself, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. But in other places, he refers to himself as the one who will judge the world. How do we reconcile these two things? Because when Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, it's because we already stand condemned. And we have nothing to offer. What does a guilty person on death row have to say to a judge who has already pronounced judgment upon them? Nothing. He may try to throw himself at the mercy of the judge, but the judge has to execute justice. Not fairness, justice. But through what Christ did for us on the cross, justice was satisfied. The justice of God was satisfied through Christ, who is our propitiation, our sacrifice in our place. This is the purpose of the gospel, to know that God's sovereignty is our security, that scripture is what sanctifies us. In John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Ephesians 5, 26, Jesus is talking about the church as the bride of Christ and says that he cleanses her through the washing her of the word. And how does he live this life within us about which accords to godliness, which leads to godliness? The Spirit shows us the way. I'll close with this, because these are Jesus' own words. All this has been Jesus' words, but this is especially important for us to understand as it relates to the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 7. Speaking to his disciples about his hour coming. Verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. It is to your advantage that I go away so that the helper will come. If I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12 though. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Holy Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth. 
for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Right doctrine leads to godly devotion, and it starts with what God says about himself. He brings us to saving faith by opening our eyes to the knowledge of the truth, which he then uses to conform us to his image and to shine his glory in the darkness. Therefore, since we know that our salvation is entirely dependent on him and he has given us all that we need to follow his commands, how can we not live in such a way that magnifies who he is and what he has promised us? My answer to that, because I fall in that same category, I have to ask that same question to myself. Why do I not magnify God the way that he is, that magnifies who he is and what he's promised to us? I get too comfortable with my sin. You get too comfortable with your sin. There's the desire to drift into the darkness. It's our natural state. To exist within the flesh is to fight sin. Interesting thing enough, the only weapon given to us in the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is, the thi- this is what is contained within what Paul is writing to Titus. Understand and take God seriously for who He is, what He has said, what He has promised, and live according to what you claim to believe. I want to pray for you right now. I want to pray for myself. Pray for our brothers and sisters across the world who share in this great faith. Again, the most unifying statement across all generations of believers is we believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ, the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. So many other things. So many other ways in which they are worked out within us in ways that we don't even understand sometimes. But it's the work of the Spirit within our lives to do what only He can do. What we are called to do is to be faithful. So Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, Lord, you know how frustrated I sometimes get when Molly comes home from school and doesn't quite seem to have everything she learned at school transfer over to what she does at home and in her own life with her family. One, I'm, you teach me all the time through that that you have the same patience or you have greater patience with me than I do with her. But how clear it is and how important it is to to not just sit in a building like what we have here to learn all of these things and then to go on living as though none of this ever took place, none of this ever happened. Right doctrine calls for and leads to godly devotion. I pray that our hearts, our words, our attitudes line up with your truth 
for your glory and for your name to be praised among the nations. Lord, do a work within us through, the, through your spirit that we may know you more fully, that our hearts may love you more deeply. And as the psalm says, that one generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. I pray that that not stop, even though the culture around us may change. You never do. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.